well, tonight we're going to uh, keep our going on our way through John 8. So I'm excited about that. From We're starting in verse 12 tonight. And we'll go all the way to verse 30. And, you know, for Father's Day, I, I've kind of been going through this gospel like for almost three months now. And so I'm going to continue on my way through that. But this passage, I think, is special for Father's Day because I can't imagine... The, Anything the father would love more than his son being honored, his son being glorified. And so Jesus is going to talk about who he is in this passage. It's going to be talking about Jesus' identity and the people who are around him, actually their inability to understand who he is. And we have to ask ourselves, do we understand who he is? Are we understanding him Rightly, or do we misunderstand as well? So, as I talked about the last couple weeks, this whole passage is set in the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a specific Jewish holiday. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, at the end, I told you they light these great big menorahs, you know, those candles you've seen, the Jewish candles that have um, kind of the, the multiple candles on it. And if you've seen one of those before, you'll know what I'm talking about. But they're called menorahs. And there's these great menorahs they light in the temple. There's four of them. And so this ritual is kind of near the end of, of the Feast of Tabernacles, in which these lights light up. It's, it's nighttime, and they light up all of Jerusalem because these, these massive menorahs are so big. And so it is in that context in which these lights are just lighting up the whole city. Jesus says this in verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What does the light symbolize with those menorahs? Well, as it relates to the Feast of Tabernacles, like I told you last week, um, that's celebrating the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. When they would walk after the Exodus, they wandered around the desert for 40 years. And it says the Lord was with them. They dwelt in tents, and the Lord was with them. And it says in Exodus 13, which is the background here, Exodus 13, it says that the Lord was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that pillar of fire was so that they could walk by day or by night following after the Lord. That's Exodus 13. And so Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What is he referring to? Well, there's a lot of background for light, God being light. That imagery is throughout the whole Bible. But in particular, as it relates to the Feast of Tabernacles, it's that pillar of fire that pillar of fire with the Israelites that was literally the presence of God on earth. It was walking with the Israelites. And so Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, maybe he's referring to that. That he is that pillar of fire, the very presence of God among the people. The very lights that were represented by these menorahs that are probably all around him in the temple as he speaks. And he says, if you see me, if I'm light and you see me, you can't walk in darkness, right? It's, if you follow after the light, you won't be in the dark. 
following after Jesus gives you the light of life. And remember John 1, 4, at the beginning of this gospel, it says, in him, being Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. That's what it says in John 1, 4. That that light that Jesus gave off was, that was humans finding their very life in Jesus. So in verse 13, it says this, the Pharisees respond to him, and they say, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. The background of this passage right here is Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, it talks about um, if evil is found in the land of Israel. This is in the, the Old Testament law. If evil is found in Israel, it says that witnesses are to call it out and purge it, like if they were worshiping foreign gods and not worshiping the Lord, you know, the Lord of Israel. And it says that no one should be put to death on the testimony of one person. Only if two or three witnesses were found who could confirm that evil had been done were they to be put to death. And so that, that principle in Deuteronomy throughout Jewish history got applied to a whole bunch of things about witnesses, about having multiple witnesses to attest to something, to say, yeah, that's true or that's not true. And that's also why the, the Ten Commandments make such a big deal about false witnessing, right? About lying about something that happened or didn't happen. It's a big deal. Well, here Jesus is saying, even in your law, doesn't it say that the witness of multiple testimony, of, of multiple witnesses is true? And he says, I, I'm not testifying just about myself, but even if I did, it would be true, because Jesus is saying, I speak the truth. But my Father testifies about me, the one who sent me. And, you know, if you read forward and backward in the gospel, one of the ways that Jesus is testified to by the Father is his miracles, right? He's doing miracles. And those show that the Father has approved him, that the Father has set his seal on him, it says. That the Father is, is showing Jesus is the Messiah by Jesus working these miracles. So he says, my Father and I are testifying, right? Shouldn't that be enough? If my Father and I testify, that's multiple witnesses. He notices that their judgment is wrong because they don't know where he's from or where he's going. And of course the answer is heaven, right? He is from heaven and he'll be going back to heaven to be with his father. That's where he came from and that's where he's going to. But in, in classic John, the Pharisees misunderstand him. See, he's talking about his father being God, the heavenly father. He's saying, my heavenly father testifies about me. And then it says in verse 19 that they said to him, the Pharisees said to him, where is your father? See, they think it's an earthly father he's talking about. Like, well, if you've got a witness, bring him out. You say this father sent you, 
Where is he? Why doesn't he come and tell us about you then? Right? Where is this father you speak of? Jesus says to them, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Right? It's that concept of like father, like son. Right? Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen what God the Father is like. And to clearly see who God the Father is, we look to Jesus. And he says, guess what? You've neither known me nor my father. You've known neither of us. You don't even know who my father is. They're looking around for an earthly father, and Jesus is saying, no, my God is my father. Right? The Lord of Israel is my father. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Again, this hour is Jesus' death that we've talked about coming. And the Lord, the Father, says his hour is not yet here. So Jesus is untouched. Despite the things he's saying, the people misunderstand. They don't understand what he's talking about. And he's untouched. He's not seized by them so that they can kill him. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, they'll be ready to kill him. This whole section is misunderstanding after misunderstanding. And in the second half of the chapter, verses 31 to 59, which we'll talk about next week, by the end of it, they are ready to kill Jesus because Jesus makes it plain who he's talking about. Jesus makes it plain that this father he's talking about is God. Jesus makes it plain that their father is the devil, is what he says. My father is God and your father is the devil. So by the end of the chapter, they are ready to kill him. They're ready to seize him, to murder him for what he said. But right now, it's still murky. They don't understand what he's talking about. So then he said again to them, I will go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. See, they misunderstand. Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. You cannot follow after me. And what's interesting is they have somewhat understood what he's saying because they realize he's referring to death. And he is. He is referring to death. He's referring to the fact that he's going to die. But he's going to die if you know the end of the gospel, if you've, if you've ever understood Jesus, you know that he's going to die at their hands. They're going to kill him. He's not going to commit suicide as they think he's talking about. No, they're going to crucify and murder him. And Jesus knows this, even at this moment, he knows that they're plotting to kill him. And so he says, no, I, you're not going to be able to follow after me. And part of the reason they're not going to be able to follow after him is because he knows he's going to be with his father. And they are not going to be with his father. Because they do not believe in him. And since they do not believe, they will not be taken to be with his father. It's interesting, he says, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. What's Jesus saying there? I don't think he's saying you're going to seek me personally, as in like when Jesus died, they were like, where's Jesus? We really miss Jesus. We, we love that guy. But well, they clearly didn't. 
Where, well, I just wish Jesus was here again. What he's talking about is who he is. Because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah, and there is no other Messiah for the Jews or for anyone else. This is the one stop for salvation. The only place to turn. And he says, guess what? After I'm gone, you're still going to be seeking me, meaning someone to save you. You're still going to be seeking a Messiah. You're still going to be seeking someone to give you hope and peace and salvation and deliverance. And guess what? No one is coming after me. There is no other hope outside my name. And so, since you missed me when I was here, since you missed me when you had the chance to go after me, to follow me, you're going to die in your sin. You're going to seek for a Messiah, and he won't come because I'm him. And sadly, that's the story of Jewish history from the days of Jesus to now is that they missed their Messiah and they've continually looked for someone who is going to come and save them and no one ever has because they missed their Messiah. It was Jesus. And they didn't know it. And now, of course, tragically, the majority of, of Jews are atheistic. They don't believe in a God anymore. And of course... If you know uh, history, the 19th century was uh, faith-shattering for the Jews. From the gulags and the Holocaust and all the terrible things that happened to the Jews in the, in the 20th century, in, in the 1900s. Um, man, awful, terrible things. Faith-shattering things. And so many of them thought there couldn't even be a God if he would allow the things to happen to us that have happened to us, to our people. But they never turned to their Messiah, the one who had come 2,000 years earlier, Jesus Christ, who they missed. Still a tragedy today. Still a tragedy even today. So, <clears throat> Jesus continued saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I am he is an interesting uh, phrase. The background to that passage is Isaiah 41. I'll say 41. But really, the whole section of Isaiah 40 to 55 is the story of um, Israel coming out of exile after Babylon, after Babylon's destroyed them. And they're coming out of exile, and, and God says this in, in Isaiah 41, and this will sound familiar to what you're reading right here, but you'll understand that the people didn't understand it. But in Isaiah 41, the Lord's talking about the fact that he brought down the nation of the north, which is Babylon, to, to wreak judgment on Israel. It says, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, 
I am he. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the words ego a me. It's a very famous phrase, ego a me. And ego a me is that I am he. And here in, in John 8, in verse 24, when he says, I am he, if you know the Greek behind the text, it says, ego a me. I am. Usually, we usually think of the divine name, I am. But that's from Isaiah 41, and really throughout that section it repeats over and over. But they don't understand he's claiming that title yet. They don't understand he's claiming that name, because they clearly misunderstand him, because he says, unless you believe that ego a me, that I am, he, you will die in your sins. And they don't pick up stones to stone him, right? They don't say he's blasphemous, that he's claiming to be God. Actually, what they say is, who are you? Ego a me, I, I am he, who, who are you then? And Jesus says, what have I been saying to you since the beginning? Right? From the very beginning of my ministry, what have I been saying about who I am? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize, the Pharisees did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Second time He uses it. Ego me. Then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, and I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus says, one day you will recognize, one day you will recognize I am he, right? That divine title he takes. When's the time that they will recognize it? When they lift up the Son of Man. What does lifting up always refer to in this gospel? The crucifixion. The lifting up of the Son of Man is Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross is his lifting up. And he says, actually, that event, that heinous event of Jesus on the cross is the very thing that will show you I am he. Which is so counterintuitive. Right? It's, it's, it's kind of opposite of everything we think. Well, if you want to prove you're God, do some big act. Do some grand thing. Do some major miracle, right? Jesus says, no, the way you'll know I'm Messiah is because I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. And I'm going to die. And that will show you that I have been obedient to the Father's will. Because no matter what he tells me to do, I do it. Because I do what is pleasing to my Father. I do what is pleasing to my Father, and you will know I'm Messiah by seeing me on that cross. It's backwards from what we think. And so as we approach this passage this week, 
as I'm closing here, we have to think about what it has to say to us today. What it has to say about where we are in our lives. What our life is like right now. That these words are still relevant to us. How are they still relevant to us? I think for one, we have to acknowledge that we all, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, whatever, we're all looking for something to save us. And we turn to so many different things to find salvation. Whether that's some particular vice, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it may be. Or whether that's some person, some relationship we think is going to come in and, oh, if only this person loved me, it would change my life. If only I could get my dad to pay attention to me, that would fix everything. If only I could get... My boyfriend, this I, I love him. If only he, I could marry him, then things would be better. If only my family could be fixed in its brokenness, then everything would be perfect. And the truth is, Jesus tells us here clearly, you're going to seek a Messiah. You're going to seek something to save you. And guess what? There is no salvation outside of me. You're going to seek me, and if you don't seek me, you'll die in your sins. Because if you don't believe, you will die in your sin. That's what Jesus has to say in this passage. And it hasn't changed even 2,000 years later that we all still seek earthly things to save us. There's no salvation outside Jesus. Secondly, Secondly, I would say this. Jesus always does what is pleasing to the Father, for, especially for those of us who are Christians. Can we claim to have lived like that? Can we claim to have lived in a way that is pleasing to the Father, where we try to do the things that he tells us to do? Of course we can't claim to be Jesus. Of course we can't claim to live in perfect obedience like Jesus did. But how important is that to us? Is it important to us? Do we think and take time and make efforts to be pleasing to our Father that we would be obedient, that we would be like Him, that we would think like Him, try to love people like He loves people, the kind of love that, according to the Gospel of John, would make God send His own Son to die in our place? Right, John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the Bible, that God would send His Son to die on our behalf. That love that compelled Him, does that same love reside in us? We have to ask ourselves that. We have to ask ourselves that. I think... I think if we're honest, we would all recognize we have not done as well as we could have with that. Especially as Christians, I think we uh, should have the humility to say we have not lived in that manner like Jesus did. And I, that's my prayer. That's my prayer for you tonight, is that we would. We live in a way pleasing to the Father, uh, not because... 
it's compelled, not because it's legalistic, not because we have to follow all the rules perfectly and check every box or we don't measure up. No, the Father loves us, it says, even when we were still his enemies. When we were aligned against him, when we hated God, he still loved us. The love is not conditional on obeying. He loved us when we were enemies. But we have to also ask, have we been changed into the type of people who want to follow God? Who want to obey him, not because of checking all the boxes, but because our heart has been changed to be the type of people who want to follow him. And that's what we have to ask ourselves. I pray you'd reflect on that during this next week. If you have, have been trying to live a life that pleases the Father, one that looks like Jesus, who is obedient, willing to die for others that they might live, In closing, let me, let me just bless you tonight. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person in here. Lord, I pray that you would touch their lives. Would you reveal yourself to them this week? Would they know you with greater clarity and greater depth than they did the week previous? God, you are such a good Father, as we sang tonight, who would send your Son to die in our place. We're grateful that you did that. And I pray that we would be compelled by that love of yours to live holy lives, to live lives that honor you and bless you, uh, to live lives that look like your son's life. Help us to do all these things tonight and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.